Hello, I'm Jeffrey Mishlove, and today I'd like to talk about my old friend and good friend, Saul Paul Sirag. Saul Paul is such a complex person that I realize I'm not going to be able to cover the entire story of our adventures together uh, in one 10-minute monologue. There's just too much to talk about. So, we'll call this the early years, the beginning of my relationship with Saul Paul. And I remember very distinctly the day that I met him because it was my birthday in 1971. He showed up at a little birthday party I was having at the Health Information program on the Berkeley campus. It was a house that the university had provided for us. I was the director of the program on Haste Street, just off of Telegraph Avenue in Berkeley. And this unusual person with a big bushy head of hair showed up at my birthday party and, and we started a conversation about LSD. And he explained to me at the time the latest scientific thinking on the subject, which he had just written about for a column that he wrote called The New Alchemy, which was published, uh, it was syndicated in college and university newspapers around the country. He wasn't a university student. He lived off campus, but uh, that's what he was doing. I think he earned maybe $15 a week or something for writing this weekly column. And uh, he explained that LSD, uh, to the best of his understanding, uh, was a molecule very similar to serotonin, a known neural transmitter, an important neural transmitter. But because the molecule was so similar, it could replace serotonin in the synapses of the brain and have a very different effect on consciousness than serotonin itself would have. And I was fascinated by this and uh, developed a friendship with Saul Paul that uh, has lasted now for many, many decades. Let's talk a little bit about his background. It's very unusual. He was raised by missionaries uh, as a young child, very young child, five, six years old. Uh, Saul Paul's missionary parents were working in Borneo with the Dayak natives. They're converting them, hopefully, to Christianity. And, well, this was during the Second World War and the Japanese came in and uh, they were put into a Japanese concentration camp on the island of Borneo and the conditions were very, very harsh in those circumstances. I can tell you that Saul Paul's father died in the concentration camp because of those harsh conditions. And Saul Paul tells me that the reason he survived is because he and his brother were given the duty of cleaning out the camp latrines. And what that enabled them to do is to eat the slugs that uh, apparently yeah, hung out there in the latrine. Probably the slugs were eating uh, what was in the latrine. And Saul Paul and his brother got to eat the slugs because uh, they were available since they were cleaning the latrines. And he believes it was that protein source that saved his life, or otherwise he might have starved to death, which presumably was the fate of his father. Now, after the war, Saul Paul's 
parents or his mother who was also who, who survived and who was a missionary put him in uh, an institute known as the Prairie Bible Institute somewhere in the Canadian Midwest and there he uh, was raised with a very devout uh, fundamentalist Christian education. He learned to memorize the entire Bible at a very young age, but he also began studying science. And at some point, he had a revelation. You see, his name was not always Saul Paul. His birth name was Paul. And of course, uh, we know now in the history of the Christian religion, Saul was a person who had a revelation and converted, changed his name to Paul and became St. Paul, one of the founders, perhaps the most significant person in shaping Christian theology. But when Paul Sirach had his revelation, it was about science. He realized that Christian fundamentalist theology was totally inconsistent with the science that he was learning, and he changed his name from Paul to Saul Paul as a way to sort of, I guess you could say, undo the revelation of Paul. And he devoted his life to science. Now, I once introduced Saul Paul to a visiting scholar, uh, Professor Ted Mann from the University of Toronto. I've spoken about Ted Mann in the past on the segment on Wilhelm Reich. Ted, Ted Mann is the author of Orgon Reich and Eros, and he came to visit me in Berkeley, and I introduced him to Saul Paul, and he said, this man is a monk in the service of knowledge. Saul Paul his library was just full of books on science and math. He devoured it. I, at the time, was a graduate student in criminology, and uh, I managed to um, acquaint myself with a number of other graduate students in the sciences and uh, who were interested in this whole question of consciousness, spirituality, the impact of uh, psychedelic drugs, uh, new research that was coming out in parapsychology, holistic health, healing. And we met regularly to discuss these things, as, as well as looking at some of the um, fundamental questions in physics and philosophy and uh, also around this time, I was instrumental in bringing Uri Geller to the Berkeley campus. And uh, I was sponsoring symposiums, as a matter of fact, on the frontiers of consciousness. So uh, one of the graduate students uh, was Kenneth Pelletier. He was a psychology graduate student. Ken Pelletier organized a series of seminars for this group of uh, graduate students uh, to meet with a, a man he knew from the East Coast named Arthur M. Young, who had been the inventor of the Bell helicopter and about whom I've spoken uh, on other occasions, <laughs> multiple other occasions in this In Presence series. Now, I invited Saul Paul to come along and 
uh, Saul, Paul, and I were, uh, I guess you'd have to say in retrospect, we were thrilled and very interested in the theories of Arthur Young that uh, were about to be published in his book, The Reflexive Universe. He was a cosmologist who had put together what you could call a periodic table of everything. It included biology, chemistry, physics, psychology, mythology, anthropology, and it seemed like a very co coherent and uh, comprehensive system of thought. And we studied it eagerly. And uh, I guess Arthur Young was impressed by the questions that we asked because a few months later, Saul Paul and I were both invited to move into the new institute that Arthur and his wife Ruth Young were creating in Berkeley. They bought a house on Benvenue Avenue uh, near the Berkeley campus and set up the Institute for the Study of Consciousness. They were also at the time publishing the Journal for the Study of Consciousness. And Saul Paul and I were invited to move in and live with Arthur and Ruth Young. And that was the beginning of uh, a new breakthrough for Saul Paul himself in terms of his scientific uh, work and his work in mathematics stimulated by Arthur Young. And I might mention uh, Arthur Young and the Institute for the Study of Consciousness and Saul Paul himself play a very prominent role in a fascinating book by the historian of science, David Kaiser. It's called How the Hippies Saved Physics. I'm in the book myself. I play a very minor part in, in that book, but uh, it's there. And I'm going to talk more in a future episode about uh, about Saul Paul's work. But what I will do right now, and if you look in the upper right hand of your screen, you'll see a link. Uh, it's been available in the past. It's a link to the table of contents online of uh, a book I published in 1975. Uh, this is the 1987 uh, revised edition, second edition of my book, The Roots of Consciousness. And it, you can link from that table of contents to the uh, appendix written by Saul Paul called Consciousness, a Hyperspace View. That'll give you a little preview of uh, the kind of advanced thinking he was uh, about to do in relationship to higher mathematics and consciousness itself. Now, of course, Saul Paul had a fascinating life, um, but what does it mean for you? Besides the fact that he was my good friend and I have had many adventures and stories to tell, what is there a lesson for you in all of this? And I can think of two lessons. Think of how he survived that Japanese concentration camp by eating slugs. Now, I know for myself, I would be far too squeamish to just eat raw slugs. Far, far too squeamish. I might die first, but I suppose I haven't been confronted with the fact maybe if I were that close to death, I'd get over my squeamishness. But uh, so one question you might be looking at is, where are you squeamish? What? How does your squeamishness, your sense of disgust, prevent you sometimes from doing things that might be necessary for you to do or good or healthy for you to do. Uh, when does squeamishness get in our own way?
And another question to think about with regard to the life of Saul Paul is his conversion from a fundamentalist Christian to a monk in the service of science and knowledge. Have you ever had a religious conversion like that? How have you in your life integrated your religious upbringing? How much of it do you hold on to and how much of it do you reject? And do you think uh, it's worthwhile for you to revisit those questions in your life? So I'll leave you with those thoughts, and I shall return on a future occasion, I'm not sure exactly when, to discuss more of uh, Saul Paul's work, and in particular, the book that he's published called Addicts Theory. There's a, a great deal more to be said about uh, my uh, relationship with Saul Paul, but this will give you a little taste of, of, of the background. Thank you for being with me.